I'm so glad that we are together this morning. Thank you so much for coming. Um, and I am so, I was thinking this past uh, week about how thankful I am for those of you, like Erica talked about her story, she came in the first Sunday in the theater when there was 10 people. I'm so thankful that there are so many of you that are a faithful part of this family that have chosen to live your life asking a question that Rebecca and I asked before we moved here. And that is, what can God do in Baltimore? Yes, I see this and I see this, I feel this and I feel that, but what can God do in Baltimore? I'm so thankful that you are here because you are asking that question. Because I know as long as we continue to ask that question, we will see miracles, we will see prayers answered. And we have a guest speaker this morning, and I say that to say this. So our guest speaker this morning is my father, Ken Malman, uh, who is the dean of Portland Bible College and one of the associate pastors and elders for over 40 years at our home church in Portland, City Bible Church. Um, and he has been uh, very close to me uh, to the extent that he was the best man at my wedding. Uh, but one of the things that I love about him is that he, like you, before we even moved here, was asking, what can God do in Baltimore? Will you welcome him as he comes? Plug it in, put it in your pocket, you're good. Thank you. All right. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> nice to see you all. Um, some of you I've met several times before. Nice to see you again. And those of you that I haven't met, howdy. <laughs> Can I uh, raise this somehow? Just pull it? Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I'm so excited to be here today. Even more. Remember, I'm tall. <laughs> Thank you. And my eyes are going bad. That's the main reason I didn't have it. So, oh, good. It's up here. I can see it. <laughs> um, obviously, uh, you were in our hearts. We pray for you every week. Uh, and you just got some more prayer supporters in Portland. There's a team of people there that pray for you regularly. Uh, but a couple weeks ago, Ben was out with us for the transition service for our lead pastor, uh, our third lead pastor now in 65 years as a church. And uh, he was there for that service, stayed a couple of days. So I had him uh, speak to my uh, one of my classes. It was about 70 students, upperclassmen, and uh, he shared uh, some of what God's doing here in Baltimore. And uh, those students came alive for the whole next week. In fact, I uh, even got a text while I was here, are you in Baltimore? Tell your son that uh, we're praying for Baltimore too now, you know, so you just got 70 more prayer supporters in that class because they were so inspired. A week later, I had uh, one young lady came to me in tears like, wow, what your son shared. I've just been going over in my mind and my heart. It's given me faith for what I think God wants me to do. So um, give yourselves a pat on the back. We're doing okay here. You know, it's like, just want you to know you've got people that uh, really love you and, and love what's going on here, and uh, we're definitely part of it. We're also happy today to have Rebecca's mother here. So we have Ben's dad and Rebecca's mom, you know, it's just, <laughs> and she and her husband, Larry, uh, were when we, Glenda and I got married and moved to Portland 45 years ago, they were the first couple in the church that invited us to their house. 45 years ago, Monday night football, it was a new thing back then. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And uh, they just opened their hearts and their home to us. And uh, Ben and Rebecca were born a month apart. They were in our church nursery together. 
So you that have babies, just be aware who's in the church nursery. You never know what's going to you know, happen as a result of that. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to jump right into the Word for a few minutes here. Uh, I want to talk about the church. See? Bearing witness to what I just said right there. <laughs> That's great. I want to talk about the relationship of the church and the Bible. Everybody have a Bible? And you're in church. So these two things are kind of supposed to relate and connect. And I'm going to talk about that relationship in a minute. Uh, one thing I uh, really enjoyed about being a dad, obviously I have many great memories with Ben and his sister. When he was uh, fairly little, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed buying the toys for him that I'd always wanted as a kid, you know. So I think it was one Christmas, you know, I bought him a set of something, you know, and had a bunch of pieces to it. And uh, this is before Legos, so I know it wasn't that. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's opening the box and he's looking at it and there's all these pieces. And immediately I was like, Ben, can I help? You know, and I get down on the floor with him, you know, and I start putting the pieces together. And pretty soon I realized he just was sitting there watching me, you know, as I'm putting his new toy together, you know. And, uh, I, you know, I thrown the box aside. Well, I'll never forget this. He was looking at the box and looking at what I was building. And he said, Dad, it doesn't look like the box. <laughs> And I looked at the boxes like, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, where's the instructions? You know, it's like, so what is the saying that we have? When all else fails, read the instructions. And how many of us uh, try to go about doing life in our, in our own way with our own ideas and, and then it doesn't always work out so great? You know, when all else fails, read the instructions. So the church and the Bible, the relationship to this, I'm going to start by just referring to three statements that Jesus made that frame this age we're living in. He made these statements 2,000 years ago. The first one... Oh, I didn't turn it on. Thank you. I knew that. Wait a few seconds, right? There we go. Jesus made three statements that frame this age we're living in. He said, I will send the Spirit... He said, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He will lead you into truth. He will empower you to witness. He will, he will be in you. He will dwell in your hearts by faith. I mean, this is very clear teaching in the New Testament. So this age began with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And then there was the 40 days where he appeared to over 500 people to prove that he was alive and that the cross worked. And during uh, the time leading up to that, he said, I'm going to go back to the Father, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send another comforter, one to be close to you. He'll be with you, and he'll teach you and guide you. So he sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It says when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were gathered in the upper room, 120 of them, waiting to receive power to be his witnesses. And the Holy Spirit fell. It was an amazing... uh, You can read that in Acts chapter 2. The second thing he said was in Matthew 16, 18. He said, I will build my church. Now, this is, tells us why he sent the Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit not to just give us goosebumps or just to make us feel stuff. That's kind of nice, too. But he sent the Holy Spirit to build the church, to empower us to witness, to bring people to Christ so they can become a part of the redeemed community. Because Jesus didn't just want one-on-one relationship with all of us. He wanted us to learn how to join our lives together and become community together so that his love coming to us would flow through us to others and uh, then from us, it would go out to those who, who not a, are not a part of the community of faith yet. The third thing he says is, then I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
Now, he sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He's now building his church. It's the only thing he said he was going to be building during these a couple thousand years now since uh, he since he ascended to heaven. And then he said, when the church has taken the gospel to every people group, family on the planet, then the end will come. He said that in Matthew 24. So beginning at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, go take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we're all a part of fulfilling the Great Commission which is to pass on the good news to uh, every to everyone and with a powerful witness all around the world. We're still working on that. We've got a little ways to go as the redeemed community. Then he said, when that's done, I will come back the second time and receive you to myself. So these three declarations of Jesus, what he de- said he determined to do, frame this age that we're living in. Now, I want to talk about the relationship of the Bible to all of this and why he gave us scripture uh, to be a part of this. So I'm going to put up three verses of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter. All three of these verses talk about how the church or the, the uh, redeemed community are God's building, God's house, God's family. And the house has a foundation, and, and the foundation is Jesus Christ, and that we're all members of God's household, and we're built on the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. That's in Ephesians. And he says this whole building, this church grows to this habitation of God and where God dwells by his spirit. And he says you, and First Peter says, you have come to the living cornerstone of God's temple to Jesus. And he says, you all are living stones that God is building together to be a spiritual temple. So these three passages and many others teach us that the church is meant to be like God's house, God's temple the building where he dwells now. So he sent the Spirit to build the church, to proclaim the gospel, be a community of faith, and then he'll come back. Everybody got it? Okay, that was about an hour of Bible college teaching I did in three minutes, you know, so it's like, okay, but it kind of frames in where we're at. Now, I want to go to one specific verse of Scripture that we're going to focus on. We have these three, 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 2, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 2, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Everybody good? I see some of you writing, so I don't want to go too fast. All right, next one. First Timothy 3.15, just write down the address up top. It says, If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's explaining to him uh, in this letter some way, things that he needs to do to help out the church in Ephesus uh, to do better. He's kind of coaching him uh, by this letter as he's his mentor. And this particular statement, notice that he says, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The uh, words that I want to focus on there are pillar and foundation. Now, when we think of a pillar... We think of, uh, you know, like just a post hidden in the wall somewhere, you know, that kind of holds up the beams, you know, that then the roof hangs on. When we think of a pillar, we don't think of something fancy and standing out. We tend to think of something hidden in the walls, right? It, it just holds things up. That's all a pillar does. But he wrote this to the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus was famous around the ancient world One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was a temple in Ephesus that was built to honor a fertility goddess named Artemis or Diana, different names for her. And this temple was 
uh, built with donations from 127 different kings of different realms. And this is an artist's rendering of perhaps what the temple looked like based on uh, archaeology and the site, because the site is still there. And these pillars, there were 127 of them. Each one of them was a gift from a king. They were not hidden in the woodwork. They stood out. Most of them were elaborately decorated with gold. Most of, the, most of them were marble that were covered in gold. Many of them had jewels. Uh, the, the, it's, the, uh, Bible scholars have had a hard time trying to guesstimate even the value of one of these pillars. They were so elaborately decorated. Can you imagine a pillar that big, that tall, and covered in gold? Now, this artist didn't capture that, uh, but archaeology and uh, different uh, writings have uh, illustrated this point of how these pillars were. So when he uses the word pillar to say the church is the pillar of the truth, he's not talking about the church is supposed to hide the truth in the wall. What he's saying is the church is to be the glorious display of the truth. Like the church is supposed to live out the Bible. Like we're supposed to put the Bible on display. We're to be living epistles known and read of all men that the truth that he communicates in the word is to be taken into our lives, mixed with faith. Then we make our life decisions and choices based on the Bible. And then we're meant to display the Bible. Everybody got it? So pillar is means to put it on display. And then he says, we're not only the pillar, the church is not only the pillar, but the foundation of the truth. So we're not only supposed to put the truth on display or put the Bible on display, the church is meant to support the truth and both support and display. If we're not into the Bible, who's going to be into the Bible? Uh, It's like, if the church is not in the Bible, how's the Bible going to affect anybody else? So these two statements are kind of symbiotic. The Bible authorizes the church. Like, where do we get the idea to have church? Well, Jesus taught it to us. How do we know how to do church? Well, the book of Acts gives us a pattern, and we have the letters of Paul written to churches that help us know how church is supposed to go. We did communion today. We worship today. You're here, and, and you like each other, and, and you're listening to teaching right now. All this stuff we do is in the Bible. When all else fails, read the instructions. So our job is to do church the way the Bible says we do, because it's not our church. It's Jesus' church. He's the one who died and paid the price for us to be a redeemed community. So, you know, here we are as the family of God, the people of God, doing church together, which means we're to display the Bible and we're also, we support and display the Bible to the world. So where do we get permission to exist? From the Bible. Jesus said, I will build my church. What is the church's mission? To display and support the Bible to the world. Everybody got it? So the church and the Bible, you really can't separate them if you let Jesus mean what he says and let the New Testament statements mean what they say. They're they're mutually kind of supportive here. So let me talk about the Bible for a little bit. Everybody good? I know I'm talking fast, but it's okay. You can listen fast, right? Okay. (laughs) We hold up the house by holding up the scriptures. It's not just the fact that we learn how to love each other. It's actually the Bible that teaches us how to love each other. In fact, you want to know what love is? Read 1 Corinthians 13. You know, it's like 
all of this, how we live our Christian life is meant to be based on the Bible. How we do church family together is meant to be based on the Bible. So talking about how special the Bible is here, I want to just focus on this for a minute. The goal of the Bible is reflected in its origin. So how did we get the Bible? Well, it didn't just fall out of the sky one day. But actually, there's over 40 different authors, wrote 66 books over a period of 1,600 years in three different languages. And yet it's one book. There is no book even close to being as amazing as the Bible is. No sacred literature, no, and there's no book that's even close to the Bible. Six, a compilation of 66 books. The themes begin in Genesis, run all through the Bible to Revelation, which is a fascinating way to study the Bible. And it's like this ingenious novel where characters and themes are, you know, introduced at the start and then it all kind of weaves together, a surprise at the end, you know, of how it all works. I mean, that's, but it was written over 16 centuries by over 40 different authors speaking three different languages. And yet it's one amazing, harmonious book. It's absolutely incredible. There's no book like it. And the key thought I want to leave with you this morning is that it's his story that's meant to intertwine with our story. Your story without his story will not amount to much. No offense, but it'll lack meaning, it'll lack purpose, it'll lack direction, and in the end, what will it matter? But you let his story be woven together with his story, which is the way he wants it, by the way, then your story has meaning and purpose and value because you're connected to something bigger than you that's been going on for thousands of years that will continue to the glorious return of Christ and the success of the church. It's like, this is amazing that we get to be a part of what the Bible is all about and why the Bible was written and what the Bible is trying to produce in the world. How was the Bible produced? Well, the Holy Spirit inspired these human writers to write infallible, perfect truth. That's a miracle. It's better than Shakespeare. It's not just human inspiration. We're talking divine inspiration. Where God did a miracle and he wrote perfect truth through imperfect vessels. Yes, God can do something great with imperfect people. (laughs) The goal of the Bible was to bring God and man together, to reconcile man to God. That's the goal of the Bible. It's the instruction book. Like, hey, you want to find God? You want to live a good life? Do you want to understand why you're breathing? The Bible is there for us. So the goal of the Bible is to bring God and man together. In the writing of the Bible, God and man work together. Kind of genius, isn't it? Kind of consistent. The goal of the Bible is reflected in its origin. God and man working together to produce the Bible. What's the goal of that? So that God and man can work together. God's so genius and so consistent. So where does this take us? The goal of the Bible reflected in its origin. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God. Now, a lot of people in America would think of the Bible as, in fact, if surveys are done just, you know, on the street, in the mall, whatever, what do you think of the Bible? It's amazing how many people answer it this way, it's a good book. Now, there are a lot of us that would say it's the infallible inspired word of God. There are actually a lot of Bible believers in America. Surprising number. But the thing that's said other than it's inspired by God is that it's a good book. 
and a surprisingly small percentage of the U.S. population when these surveys are done, you know, plus or minus 3%, you know, the way they do the polls. Surprisingly smaller amount of Americans say, no, the Bible's just a hoax, it's a myth, it's, it's not real. And why? Because to be intellectually honest, you have to understand the Bible, that we have more evidence that the Bible is an authentic book written over those 16 centuries, finishing the 50, uh, 2,000 years ago. We have more evidence of that than Homer wrote the Odyssey. All the ancient manuscripts times 10 versus any other piece of ancient literature that nobody argues whether it's old or not or that it's uh, you know genuine or not. Like we have more evidence that the Bible is the real thing. So most people say it's a good book. The problem is the Bible won't let you say that about it. Why? Because of statements like this. The Bible claims to be the inspired word of God. It doesn't claim to be a good book. Now, it's either telling the truth about itself or it's lying. So you only have two intellectually honest conclusions you can come to about the Bible. One is it's the infallible inspired word of God and you better base your life on it. Or it's a total fraud and rip off and why are you paying attention to it? There's no middle ground to be intellectually honest, there's no middle ground because good books don't lie about themselves. Everybody follow my point there? Good books don't lie about themselves, so it either is what it claims to be or it's lying about itself and we should not pay attention to it at all. You can't go halfway with the Bible. You can't pick and choose. Well, I like these parts. I'm going to live by that. This part, I don't know. Maybe it's not inspired. You can't do that. Good books don't lie about themselves. Right. Here's some cool things about the Bible. It is the most public bu- published book in human history times 10. Second most published book in human history is the quotations of Chairman Mao, and it's not really being published that much anymore. <laughs> 10 times more than all the Harry Potter books put together. It's the most read book for, if you look at all the stats, and even just in the last 50 years, eh? well, yeah, it was read a long time ago, but what about recently? By far, the number one bestseller always. You know the bestseller list, like the New York Times bestseller list? How they listed the top 10 selling books? It's all the books except the Bible. Because they got tired of the Bible being number one every single week. The Bible is number one all the time. The most printed, the most sold, the most read, the most studied book in all of human history, many times over than any other piece of sacred literature, including the Koran, etc. The Bible is the you know first book printed on a printing press, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but it's definitely the most published book ever. Here's a uh, another stat about a, a survey done uh, American. This is done three years ago by the Barna Group. of Americans own a Bible. 80% say the Bible is sacred to some degree. 61% wish they read the Bible more. The problem is 88% of Americans own a Bible, but not 88% of Americans are living like they own a Bible. So we have a lot of Bibles around that we have semi-respect for, but are we really letting the Bible get into us? That's the real question. It's the most translated book in human history. Almost 3,000 languages. Right now, 98% of the world's population has some or all of the Bible in their language. We're on our way. We're trying to get to 100%. Almost 3,000 languages. 
The next closest to that is a compilation of Jehovah Witness publish, pu- uh, publications in 640 languages. The Bible 3000, Jehovah Witness publications 640. The next one to that is Pinocchio. <laughs> which is now in 260 languages. The Bible, 3,000. Pinocchio, 260. After that is a story called The Little Prince, 253 languages. Pilgrim's Progress, 200 languages. The Koran, 114, with only 50 complete translations of it in a language. The Book of Mormon, 110. It keeps going down from there. The Bible is like the most read, published, translated book by far in the history of the world. It's the most influential book. Science, art, business, all kinds of things have come from the Bible. In fact, uh, the start of modern science, most of those ideas came from God-fearing, Bible-believing guys who drew assumptions from there, and then uh, off we went. I don't have time to tell you stories on that. It's the most preserved book in the Bible. I mean, there's no book been opposed more. Armies have marched against it. Rulers have collected them all. It's been banned and outlawed. One ruler in Europe uh, had his uh, soldiers went through every household. This is back when it was all hand copied and there was no printing press. Had all the Bibles in his realm gathered, took it to a spot in one town and had the pile of Bibles burned, all hand copied. After that king was no longer in power on the same location after the printing press was invented on the same location there was a printing press printing bibles (laughs) you don't beat the bible (laughs) we had a family in our church that came from romania this is uh, decades ago now back when lyndon johnson was president the romanian dictator ceausescu in receiving some foreign aid from the u.s Part of the foreign aid, millions of dollars in food and stuff, because Romania was very impoverished at the time because of his authoritarian rule. And a part of the aid agreement was that he would receive a shipment of 15,000 Bibles. He took the Bibles and reprocessed them into toilet paper. Ceausescu, the Roman dictator, uh, Romanian dictator. Our friend in Portland was in prison for preaching the Bible and distributing Bibles. As a part of that, he was released from prison and given asylum in the U.S. Ended up in Portland, ended up a part of our church. Fast forward to the fall of communism, which, by the way, the fall of the communist dictator in Romania uh, happened because he was trying to arrest a pastor for preaching the gospel. What he had done, and it was cover of Time magazine, had a picture of his palace that he built that he never got to live in, and a marble causeway one mile long leading up to his palace. In the city, he had torn, he had displaced a bunch of people, torn down a bunch of buildings, and was spelling out his name in buildings across the city. So if you were in a helicopter above the city, you'd see his name spelled out in buildings. And while the people are starving, literally, it was that dire of a situation. He's spelling out his name and there's a marble causeway, big palace, etc. They went to arrest this, his, his uh, I forget what they're called, but kind of his secret police, special police force went to arrest this pastor. The people of the congregation surrounded him and wouldn't let them arrest him. So they went and got the military. There's been several written accounts of this. I've talked to two people that were there this day. The military comes back. The crowd of people trying to protect their pastor from the dictator's arrest decided that to 
escape violence that day, they would put the women and children out in front of the crowd because nobody would shoot women and children. The secret police incited the military to actually start firing on the crowd. They started shooting women and children. Panic. The crowd stood still and started chanting these words, God is with us. In Romania, of course. I don't know how to say it in Romania. They start chanting, God is with us. The soldiers are like, what are we doing? Killing women and children. They turn their guns on the secret police and the revolution started. And within two weeks, Ceausescu was hung upside down by the people that killed him. And the dictatorship was over. The guy in our church had been waiting for years to get to go back to Romania. So he had a truckload of Bibles in Europe ready at another nation. He goes back to the country one week later the new officials that are in charge of the country say, oh, you were in jail because of Ceausescu? Welcome back. What do you want to do? He said, I want to set up a Bible bookstore. The dictator who reprocessed Lyndon Johnson's 15,000 Bibles into toilet paper is now deposed, and this man takes his truckload of Bibles. They gave him a building on the Marble Causeway And NBC was there with their cameras as he opens the first Bible bookstore. The line before it opened was clear down the marble causeway a mile long, and by 10 a.m., the store was empty. You don't beat the Bible. It's, It's amazing. Now, let me just finish with this. So how should we use the Bible? Maybe we should read it more. Novel thought, but, you know the best book you'll ever have. It's God's letter to you. You know, why not read it? Maybe we should study it. Get into what it means. If you don't understand something, ask Ben. He'll explain it. (laughs) Maybe we should meditate on the Bible more. That is, think about how it applies to our life. Personalize it. I mean, if you have trouble praying, there's a lot of scripture that'll help you pray. You want to fuel your worship because you're tired of just singing mindless hallelujahs all the time with no creative thought and expression. Go to the Psalms. It'll fuel your worship. Maybe we should memorize it. It would kind of help strengthen us in moments of weakness or temptation or fear. If there was a verse of scripture, we could call to mind. The Holy Spirit would quicken that. How did Jesus conquer temptation? Three times. It is written. It is written. It is written. We should get the Bible into us. And then, obviously, you can actually also sing the Bible. It has so much help for us in our daily life and choices. I'm just going to finish with one more story. Um, one thing I like to do, usually about three months out of the year, is I'll do the thing with the book of Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs and 31 days in some months, you know, some have 30. But chapter 31 is about the virtuous woman. I think that's for my wife to read anyway. So it's like, it works out. But like whatever day of the month, what's today, the 16th? Yes. Yeah. So you would read chapter 16 today. So I do that. I've done that many, many times. You know how Proverbs has all those one-liners, you know, of wisdom, you know, and often I'm reading, like, if I read chapter 16 today, I did, I'm not doing it this month, but if I was, I'd read through those, and I kind of pray before I do it, and so many times there'll be one or two or three of those Proverbs that'll just jump off the page because it's so relevant to what's going on in my life right now. So one morning, I'm reading a chapter in Proverbs, and I'd gotten a call a few days before from a man in our church. He said, uh, I was, we were pastoring the Young Adult Society. He says, Pastor Ken, would you, uh, would you be willing to have an appointment with our daughter? I said, well, does she want to talk to me? And he says, well, 
The problem is she likes a boy that we don't approve of and we're kind of at a standoff and we asked her if she'd be willing to talk to a pastor about it and she said yes and she picked you and I'm thinking, lucky me. <laughs> I, I knew that she'd grown up in the church. I didn't know her, didn't have a relationship with her. I thought one word for me, she's going to do what she wants anyway. I didn't have much faith for it. So we set the appointment that day. I had read this verse in Proverbs. It said this, make no friendship with an angry man. And I was like, that's why her parents, because I knew the boyfriend, I'd play basketball with him. He was anger waiting to happen. She comes to my office. I said, oh, I'm sorry, your parents are meeting. Can you talk to me? And she said, yeah, it's okay. And I said, how about we don't talk about your boyfriend? Is that okay? I'm a pastor. I like to talk to people about their relationship with the Lord. Can we just talk about that? She was relieved. She said, sure. I said, so do you love Jesus? Yeah, I do. Do you pray? Well, not enough. Do you like the Bible? Uh, yeah, I like the Bible. I said, do you ever read it? She said, well, not as much. I said, do you think the Bible can speak to you? I was really... <laughs> she says, yeah, I think it can. I said, well, I hope you won't be offended by this, but this morning I was reading this chapter in the book of Proverbs, and I just came across this verse, and I just thought I should have you read this verse. If it speaks to you, fine. If it doesn't, no, you know, I, I, but I shoved the Bible across my desk. I said, just read that verse right there. She stared at it. There was a long, uncomfortable silence. I'm like, I'm not saying anymore. If the Bible can't speak to her, what, you know. She started crying, sobbing, you know, like snot crying, you know, just like, so I pulled my Bible. No, I gave her some, I, I gave her some Kleenex and I just waited a really long time. And I said, is God talking to you? I'll never forget, she looked up, her mascara was running. She says, I think you know. (laughs) Fast forward. Based on the Holy Spirit speaking through that verse, she broke up with him. Fast forward 12 years later, I'm in another city, uh, another state, and I'm speaking at a church. After the service, she comes up to me. She's got a couple of kids, and she says, Pastor Ken, do you remember me? I said, yeah, I remember you. She says, do you remember that verse? I said, yeah, I remember that verse. She got tears in her eyes. She said, that verse saved my life. The boy she broke up with married somebody else, ended up being put in jail for spouse abuse. Her dad was right. She's happily married with children. She introduces me to her kids. She says, that verse saved my life. Listen, there is nothing like the Bible. Maybe what we should do is live it. Read it, study it, meditate on it. Most importantly, live it. What is the church? It's the pillar and foundation. We put the Bible on display through our lives and we hold it up and support it by the way we obey it. When all else fails, read the instructions. Thank you. God, I thank you so very much uh, that you give us instructions and relationships with each other. Lord, I thank you that you don't leave us on our own. Lord, and um, this can seem challenging today. It can seem tough because sometimes when we turn to the scripture, it's hard to understand. Lord, I ask that you'd help us to not live in fear. 
Lord, I ask that you'd help us to not live intimidated by the words on the pages, but believing that a loving God, a loving Father, wrote those words for us, and that a loving God can help us live it. I thank you for that today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.